Welcome to our podcast. Good news, we are currently running a special promotion for new Hedgeye podcast listeners. Get your first month free to any one of our investing products for brand new Hedgeye subscribers. Email Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com to get yours. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another Real Conversation with my friend, economist, strategist, author, Daniel Lacaye, who has a lot to talk about. But we want to focus on three big things in this discussion. Number one, 3% U.S. GDP, whether or not that is true and or sustainable. Number two, we're going to talk about Spain, which is his home, and he has a tremendous amount of edge on that. And then number three, we're going to talk about socialism, and I know he has plenty of thoughts about that. So, so welcome, and thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much, Keith. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're, you're quite welcome. The, the 3% GDP. Yeah. You're, I think, the only guy on Twitter that is a published economist who is super bullish on, or maybe not super bullish, but bullish on the U.S. economy, is 3% GDP true, and how do, how do you think about it? Absolutely. Yes, I think that what, what, is, what has happened fundamentally in, 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 in most of uh, consensus analysis is that what they're missing is what is changing and the pace at which it is changing. Mm-hmm. You and I have had this conversation in the past in which we have seen how uh, CapEx was declining, in which we have seen how, uh, you know, gross formation of capital was very poor and actually mostly from recycled capital. And, and what we're seeing is a fundamental change there, which is uh, an integral part of a, of a healthier and stronger GDP growth for the U.S., mm-hmm. We have also seen in the past that we were constantly uh, looking at revisions from the Federal Reserve, uh, from the government, from consensus of the growth of the United States, um, and that most of the improvement came from inventory revision. What we are also seeing right now is that inventories are getting better, are getting much better, which, which shows that the uh, consumers are, are spending more, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm which shows that companies are more confident about the economy, about investing in the economy. And also, it shows that uh, it's not just one sector. For example, at the beginning of the uh, QE, it was the big boom in energy that drove GDP growth. Uh, Right now, it's very balanced. We are seeing an improvement in in many of the sectors that were sort of stagnant for a a very long time. So I'm I'm actually uh, much more confident about uh, uh, the estimates of a, of a sustained uh, 28 to 3% growth uh, rather than, than I was uh, at the end of last year. For example. I mean, at the end of last year, it was pretty dark. You had, oh. a, you had a profit recession, to your point, you had a recession in capital spending. You know, there's so many different things that come alongside profits. Exactly. And what I love about your work is that you're a practitioner's economist. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, fundamentally, you're very well-versed, but you're a practitioner's economist. I mm-hmm. mean, how does the real world work as opposed to how we'd like to theorize politically or not on how it should work. Exactly. I mean, how it works is if I have more profits, guess what? I can either invest it in capital expenditures or in my inventory. Mm-hmm. And some people see the inventory number today and they're like, well, that's bad. Yeah. That's not bad. That's what you do. You have to sell inventory. So you would build inventory because you have profits to build the inventory. Do you see a lot of, um, uh, do you see an amelioration in kind of the fundamental explanation of what's going on in the economy yeah. uh, these days or do you not? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and if you go uh, to Europe, if you go to the UK, uh, any explanation about the US economy is tainted by a political view about the, who's, in, in, you know, who's in the presidency, and which, which dwells into the problem that we are always talking about, that the problem of analyzing the US economy is that if you, if you base it on your political views, you yeah. forget that this is an economy that does not depend as much on what government decides to do as, for example, uh, the European one. Right. Is, huh? Well, actually, on today's on the 3% GDP number, government spending was nothing. Exactly. I mean, it actually had nothing to do with the number. Exactly. So, of course, people that are bearish on 3% GDP wouldn't call that out. But in Europe, it's highly dependent on the government. Hugely. Not only, not only on, on what comes up as government spending, but all of the subsidies to the private sector that, <laughs> well, are, gov- <laughs> that are government spending. But think about it from that perspective. You just mentioned something that I think is very important, is that uh, many economists were calling a U.S. recession based on the fact that government spending was not increasing. Mm-hmm. And if you remember the infamous article from Paul Krugman, Time to Borrow, no? <laughs> that the only solution for the U.S. economy was that the government would have to start borrowing massively and start spending to drive the economy str- uh, stronger. It, what has proven to be uh, the success of this uh, improvement in the economy is the fact that it's driven by families and it's driven by companies. Mm-hmm. And it's driven by companies that are making better returns, that are making stronger uh, margins, and where, where the, the, the profit-led economy is much more sustainable than the spending-led economy. That's a big difference. I mean, profits, I mean, profits, profits, profits. It leads to being able to do things uh, as opposed to levering your, up your balance sheet to buy back stock. A lot mm-hmm. of the things that happened when we had negative profit growth happened for a reason. Because exactly. they didn't have profits to do the ordinary things that they'd like to do. Mm-hmm. Companies do like to invest in their business. I'm pretty sure about that. Um, but when you, when, you, when you take a step forward and you say, okay, what happens next in the U.S. economy? Hmm. From a tax reform perspective, so we start to think about after-tax profits. Sure. How reflexive or dynamic do you think the U.S. economy is, given how many pass-through entities we have, uh, and certainly looking at it relative to the European economy? Because a lot of people that I talk to always talk to me about how European stocks are cheaper. Yeah. And I say, well, they're cheaper for a reason. Uh, you know, exactly. 94% <laughs> of U.S. companies are pass-through entities. Exactly. 94%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I give a depreciation tax holiday of 100%, well, that's, I have a lot more money to invest in my business. Hmm. Is that something, like, do you have any forward outlook on what uh, tax reform might be, do, or, yeah. or, or, or mean to the U.S. economy and relative to Europe? Mm-hmm. Um, the tax reform, at least how it has been presented, we don't know how it is going to be uh, at the end of the day, you know, and, and which form it will take. But if you do what it, what it does, which is very clever, it does two things. On one side, it is boosting the, uh, the, the bottom line for companies so that they can hire more and they can invest more. Yes. On the second side, it is, it is very much about repatriation of capital. Mm. Because one thing that has been a, a burden on the U.S. economy in the past, 
last eight years was, you remember all the inversion deals, all the companies that, that found better places to, to invest and look for opportunities rather than, than the U.S. So that's, that's very clever because that attracts capital uh, back into the economy. But at the same time, it is very much about boosting disposable income to the middle class. Mm -hmm. So in an economy like the U.S. in which consumer spending has been an integral part, a, a, a critical part of the growth in GDP, uh, it basically pushes forward in that, in that area. It, it helps the economy get better into shape in terms of, of, of consumption. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that uh, what right now we can, we can say is if the tax reform happens, if the tax reform as it is, is implemented, you could very easily think of a boost in GDP growth that would double the potential. So, so instead of thinking about uh, an, an, you know, a 3% growth, you could be talking about a 33 3.5% growth mm. relative to where consensus is, which is closer to 2.6. No? Mm -hmm. So you know, it's, 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 the, it's what marginal increase you can get on an economy that is obviously mature, that is obviously very inward-looking. And this is the critical part of the tax reform, is that it understands the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy is not about being more, uh, you know, is it subsidizing for exports or things. It's, a, it's an economy that exports very little. It's about 13% of GDP. It's an economy about, about driving the industry back into the U.S. Mm -hmm. and driving consumers back into the shops, which mm -hmm. is what's important mm -hmm. for all of us, for jobs, and for those uh, wages that for eight years we have seen economists say next year, next year we're going to see wage growth, next year we're going to see wage growth. It didn't happen. Why it didn't happen? Because productivity growth was atrocious. Yeah, well, yeah, negative. I mean, I, I sound like a broken record, but I mean, the, the, these are very big pillars exactly. of productivity, which are profits, profits, and profits. <laughs> exactly. If profits are going negative, productivity is most likely going down. Yeah. Now we have profits going up and productivity's picked up. My concern there is that, of course, it's just a cyclical lift. Hmm. in productivity, but that's, you know, that's, that's a, I think, a discussion for another day. I think the most important thing you, you, you brought up is a 3-3 three to 3-5 three, three to three, GDP. Because yeah. that's really, most people when they hear GDP 3, yeah. well, first of all, they, sh they didn't hear 2, so that's, yeah. a, that's a start. At the start of the year, every economist said 2. Hmm. It feels like 2. And then it was, eh, the economy, the hard data is not accelerating, yet it's still 2. Yeah. Well, not, it's not 2, it's 3, and you're saying maybe 3.5. Yes. Do you, do you actually think the U.S. economy has the capacity? You, you'd like to, I mean, you could, you could hit a 3.5 maybe yeah. headline, but yeah. sustaining 3.5, we haven't done since the 1990s. Well, 1990 is the average GDP between 93 and 1993-96 was f uh, just north of 4%. So mm -hmm. it certainly has the capacity. But under very different demographic situations. Under very different demographic situations, yes. But at the same time, you have a completely different industrial landscape. Right. You, have an, you have an industrial landscape in which uh, you've had the old economy wisen up very, very quickly. Walmart has wisened up to Amazon. And Walmart today is stronger uh, because of Amazon, not because the government protected it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get into socialism. We're going to get into, into that one. But um, uh, we have seen the energy sector, the energy sector uh, with right. such low oil prices and such low natural gas prices delivering 8.6, 8.7% return on invested capital. You have the telecom sector that is that has completely changed the landscape of what big companies are in, in the United States. So uh, if you think about 
the, the, the fundamental change of the, of the U.S. economy. It is actually going from obsolete conglomerates to high-tech, high-added-value, stronger-margin companies. That obviously takes time to deliver mm -hmm. the type of growth that we're talking about. But the capacity is there. This is yeah. an important factor. Uh, and more importantly, one of the reasons why we were getting used to 2% growth, etc., was because the economy was sort of agree. Well, the economists were accepting all the burdens to growth that were implemented in the economy and sort of like they have to happen. Now, 35% uh, uh, tax on corporations. What the hell are you talking about? Not even, Crazy. It's, it, that's, that's completely insane. And you wonder why companies go to Canada or to Ireland. Um, so companies have been investing, you see. You were mentioning before about the, the alleged evils of, of buying back stocks and, and, and increasing dividends. Companies have been investing, have been investing what they needed, but companies are looking for what is the best return on their money, mm -hmm. okay? So if, if they see that they're going to earn a better return by investing in the economy in the United States, they will invest in the yes. United States. Uh, especially yeah. now. This is a very mm. subtle but important point, and we hear it. I, was, I mean, I've been in so many different cities, I forget how many, and, and you too in the last, mm -hmm. in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but just in Boston yes, uh, the, earlier this week, the, the main debate was interestingly, but not surprisingly, returns on invested capital instead of investing in these negative return on equity, uh, effectively things that got people paid for a long period. Exactly. exactly. You, know, you were talking about levered energy, telecom companies, negative ROEs. Exactly. But they could buy back their stock and pay you a dividend. But so many people are now telling the companies, if you invest in your business and you in, in turn you earn a return on invested capital, I'll give you a higher multiple. Exactly. That, that hasn't happened in a while. Because that's another of the, of the fallacies that came from the interventionist uh, agenda of some economies. They were saying, look, investors are always going to push companies to uh, invest less and to buy back stock because that's the way in which the stock market works. That's not true. That has not been true. You and I have been in the market for many, many years, probably too many. And you, we know that, we, that investors tended to give better multiples to companies that invested wisely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, it is not wise to invest in an economy in which you have uh, an increasing burden both on families and on, on, the, on the overall economy. And therefore, you, you basically what you would be doing would be adding to overcapacity. Yes. So the point is, once you see that that overcapacity is gone, this is the only uh, the, the U.S. is the only uh, you know mature and OECD economy that I know that has less than fifteen percent overcapacity today, the only one, mm -hmm. which is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So you so th there is a capacity to to invest. Now there is a capacity to invest if disposable income in the average family increases and there is more room for those families to to consume more and to consume better and to and to get the economy working that's what the economy does it's not going to come from from poor capital allocation directed by government it's going to come from families deciding what products and what services they prefer yeah that's and i think that that the fact that you know that uh, you have more uh, disposable income is an integral part of what drives an improvement in GDP and uh, the reduction in inventories and the reason why companies feel more, uh, more optimistic. Companies, 
companies don't think about whether this is one president or this is another president. Think about the outlook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you and I always always talk about this, how important it is when you when you look at earnings. It's not just the earnings that they're publishing, but the outlook that yeah. companies are giving. We are seeing companies give a better outlook. They're seeing better a better environment for investing. And you know, U.S. companies, if they decide, if they if they look at opportunities to invest between one country and the U.S. in any shape or form, because of weighted average cost of capital, because of knowledge of the market, because of the way in which the economy is set, they will prefer to invest in the U.S. <laughs> so agree. why it did not happen before <laughs> with lower overcapacity than um, than uh, in other OECD economies, with a healthier financial sector, with a much more robust uh, corporate sector, it did not happen because there were too many clouds that were artificial clouds that mm -hmm. were directed directly at pushing growth down. And that is, the, that is something that is gradually lifting, and I think that that is a positive. Yeah, I think it's a great, it's a great metaphor, the clouds, or, or we often talk about the ball that's being held underwater. Exactly. You can only cyclically hold corporate profits negative and CapEx negative for so long, then all of a sudden when it's released, it surprises so many people, uh, the inertia of that release, and that's obviously what we've seen. So that's a, I think that's an important discussion. Now, to flip a switch to something where we, well, we see negative, uh, I guess we see a, a lot more negative outlook now, Spain. Yeah. Uh, I have a very hard time keeping up with it in <laughs> English. Yeah. Uh, you're keeping up with it, obviously, in both languages. But yeah. w what's your take there right now? Well, obviously, you know, one thing that has happened in Europe in general is that investors have uh, stopped looking at political risk. Political risk that has not uh, disappeared. In fact, it maybe had been dormant because of the, uh, you know, uh, of the uh, monetary laughing gas mm -hmm. of the of the ECB. Or but, Le Pen not winning in France, or you know, yeah. But be. think about it. Le Pen, the market got excited about Macron winning without paying attention to the fact that between Le Pen and Mélenchon, the two radicals, the communist and the and the ultra right one, between those two, they were forty percent of the electorate. Hmm? And, and we, we don't, we don't, we're not paying attention to data. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. we always, we're not paying attention to data to what's happening in Germany in which uh, Merkel wins the elections and has to get into a coalition with the Greens, which are radical left, and the Liberals. Liberals as in, as in classic Liberals uh, European. No? So it's a, an impossible coalition. It would be like saying, <laughs> I don't know. Bernie That's why said, they call it Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a crazy thing to call it? Exactly. So, what is that? It's, and it's, what it's, happened in Spain was the same. What yeah. happened in Spain is that the, the recovery, which was very, very strong, led a lot of people to look at the economy in a very benign way, which is, which is true. And, and the, you know, it was, a, it was a positive surprise factor for many, for many years, which is a great thing. And the reforms were actually very successful. Numerous things happened, but political risk was being ignored. Mm. And political risk is what now has rose abruptly because... What, what U.S. investors tend to forget is that political risk in Europe is completely detached from economics. So, you know, you have uh, people saying, oh, let's get out of the euro. Oh, let's get out. That's fantastic for the economy. <laughs> no? <laughs> you know? and, but, but you, know, you know, and people vote for those kinds of yeah. things. So 
And political risk in this case is extremely negative for both the recovery, a nascent recovery, a still fragile recovery, and uh, more importantly because it is based on a completely... Uh, I would say lunatic, it is lunatic vision of, a, of, a, uh, of an expansive secession that is impossible in such a levered and intervened uh, economy as the Catalan and the Spanish is. No? So unfortunately, uh, this, this whole situation shaves off GDP estimates, uh, shaves off employment growth, mm-hmm. which still with a 16.8% level of unemployment, so nothing that you could say, okay, you know, we shouldn't worry. <laughs> um, so there's, there, so it's, it, it is definitely a, a, a strong impact, unfortunately, on an economy that was, that was on the right path. And suddenly, again, and this is, if you look at history, is very typical of Spain and of Europe, uh, it comes up, uh, political risk comes up just when you start to get out of the, of the and people start to get, uh, think, okay, we've done everything and everything is fine. No, we, there's a lot more that needed to be done. It's, it's cyclical. I mean, it, it is cyclical. It's, it's kind of, it's, and I wonder if you agree with this. I often uh, talk to investors about, the secular problems of Europe being the demographic problems primarily. So we look at the 35 to 54-year-olds, the main earners and spenders in the economy. They have a sort of Damocles over their head, and it's not going away. They are slowing in population growth rate. They are spending less as a result. They are going forward. Time and space is the only catalyst, and it's not a Mm. positive one. That's secular. Mm. So the the main risk in Europe is when the cycle slows into the secular. Mm -hmm. So you have to pay very close attention to the economic cycle. When you take a political catalyst and it perpetuates the slowdown of the cycle, now you're really still moving towards where you were always going. Exactly. From a secular perspective. Mm -hmm. So how does that, what I just said, ring in your head, if at all? No, it does, uh, completely. I think that... uh, when we look at economies, uh, it is so. It's something that really amazes me is that economists don't pay attention to demographics. They think that monetary policy or that government spending is going to offset the impact of demographics. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's it's absurd. It is completely absurd. Simply by the law of nature of the you know the the number of economic agents that participate in in the process of slowing down. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing bad about it. You know, it's, uh, the aging of a population has good things, has bad things. It is bad for the way in which GDP yep. needs to grow in the European Union to perpetuate the, 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 the most dangerous equation that exists in economy, mm-hmm. which is in Europe is about 3.5% of the world's population, is about mm, 235 more or less, 24% of its GDP, but it's about 55% of the public spending. Mm-hmm. So one of, those, one of those numbers is at risk. And, it's, and the problem of the European Union, and this is something that every time that I speak with, with U.S. investors, please think about this, is that every single economic decision, every single political decision is based on the pillar of not touching the welfare state. So you cannot think of, a, of, of dynamism, of, of, of an improvement in, in taxation to boost jobs, to boost investments, etc., when your only priority is that government spending cannot go down. (laughs) 
Think about it. The European Union, the European Union has, has uh, taken government spending to almost 50% of GDP, and when it lowered it by 5%, they call it austerity. It's like, it's like <laughs> you spend three years eating donuts, and then you have a, a, an orange juice and think you're in detox. See, huh? I, t- I, t- I told you Daniel was going to want to go to the third topic, <laughs> which is socialism, so let's just do it. I mean, how does socialism fix demographics? Socialism doesn't fix demographics. What what does socialism fix? Socialism doesn't fix anything. (laughs) Socialism uh, promises to fix everything with with the idea that 2 plus 2 equals 22. And, you know, that's something that we believe when we are kids. We believe in Father Christmas. We believe in Santa Claus. We believe, we believe that we're going to receive presents for nothing, but nothing is free. And the idea of socialism, that it's going to find um, the billions of revenues out of nowhere <laughs> to fund something that is not being able to fund today, is simply, well, the the... What ends up happening is that the promise of uh, of this uh, beautiful, equal, uh, and 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 uh, very rich uh, environment ends up being the reality of stagnation and uh, low wages and high unemployment. Mm. Now, a place like France does is that the epicenter of this, or would it you is. say another country is? It is. It is. I mean, you know, they're very. <laughs> In, in the European Union, we live in various degrees of socialism, and uh, you basically choose between what it's, what it's, it's between uh, the, the very bad to the super bad. But, <laughs> but think about it. I ask France, and you know why, because most people, if somebody was long a chart that yeah. had European equities in it in May, mm. they thought that Macron was going to make it different this time. Yeah. They needed to think that. Yeah. But those who have not studied Europe and or socialism... Um, may believe that. Like you said, they may believe in Father Christmas. Yeah, that is believing in Santa Claus. That is believing in Santa Claus. That is, and that is not paying attention to history. But I still have a lot of American institutional investors who tell me that this could be different this time in France. Of course. And those people who are probably very experienced have decided uh, to forget that we have seen this before. Mm. It happened with Sarkozy. The, the, previous, the, the president before uh, the socialist uh, president in, in, in France, uh, we had the same idea that Sarkozy was going to make big reforms, that it was going to lead the economy to a stronger, uh, more productive, and more market-driven. Yep. But, it, but it doesn't happen. Think about it. The first, the, the first serious economic decision that Macron has done is to nationalize uh, a, 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 a shipyard. Sorry. Hmm? Nationalize a shipyard. Oh, that's okay. That that is going to definitely drive the economy stronger. Huh? But what I'm saying is, is he also said the other day he wants to harmonize yeah. the tax regime you see? of France across the eurozone. Exactly. And I said that to an investor, and the investor thought that was positive. I said, no, 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 harmonize. Like you'll keep their rates at the same. You'll get their rates to the rates that that individual tax rates are in exactly. France. And he said, oh, that would be terrible. Exactly. That's, the problem. <laughs> That's the problem of people that don't pay attention to history and to data, is that when in Europe anyone uses the word harmonize, it means raising taxes. <laughs> harmonize, <means> raising. raising. <laughs> harmonize but is But it not, sounds like... You, no. can, you can... This is... This is the, <laughs> <laughs> the tax the 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 tax burden in, in, in France is about fifty and change percent of GDP. 
it's not harmonizing it to Ireland. It is, it is harmonizing Ireland to France. Huh? And that is not a positive. That is not a positive for growth. That is not a positive for productivity growth. That is not a positive for jobs. Uh, that is only a positive for government. I can't stop laughing because socialism to them is considered harmony. Exactly. So harmonize is the perfect word so, to use, ah, but that sounds to an American like a positive thing. Yeah, exactly, because that's the, 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 the subterfuge of the use of words <laughs> is very clever. But think about it, instead of saying... Socialism is clever in terms of... clever in terms of using words. Yeah. But think about it, instead of saying harmonize, think about it as theft. It's not, it's not harmonizing. It's, 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 it's stealing. Hmm? Okay, yeah, because yeah. it is... Stealing ste- is better than theft. Because it's sounds <laughs> because it's stealing from the productive sectors to subsidize the unproductive, and any investor in the U.S. needs to pay attention to what 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 happens in the in the in the economy and the companies. Think about it this way: you look at the S and P five hundred today. You look at the main components of the S and P five hundred. The, the vast majority of them did not exist twenty years ago. Mm. Hmm? Look at the Euro. REITs. Yeah. Look at the Euro stocks. They're the same companies. Yeah. All of them. Actually, probably with the same management, actually. Huh? So the, the, that, that is being evil. But the, the, the problem... No, the nepotism, too. I mean, there's a serious amount of that. Of course there is. Yeah. But the, 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 the problem is, if you think about it, everybody understands the, the issues of Japan. Everybody understands the issues of a, of a, of a corporate sector that is b- based on very large conglomerates that almost are a, 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 a second branch of government and that basically generate an economy that is very insular and that is very driven to uh, perpetuate a very large government spending, very large entitlements, very large welfare state. Everybody understands those challenges and what that has meant to make the, the Japanese economy less dynamic, uh, less able to grow, and obviously, uh, as we know. They might now, characterize it as harmonious, however. Exactly, exactly. And that is the Socialists problem. like that example. Oh, they love that. People, you see, one of the things that you have when you have a discussion with academia in, in Europe is that they don't see Japan as a mistake or as a... Success. They see it as a success because yep. they say, look, there's 4% unemployment. There's 250% debt to GDP. There is 4% unemployment because the people, because the aging of the population is so, is so huge that they're not only aging but losing population mm-hmm. while debt increases to pay for entitlements. Mm-hmm. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's so, crazy. So, but, but everybody understands that that has created stagnation. However, with the European Union, for some strange reason, again, coming back to believing in superheroes or something like that, you think that that is going to drive growth. That's nuts. The same policy. The same no, we, policy. We, have, we actually have a chart which we'll show that shows, going back to, to where is the money, who, who makes the money and who spends the money. That's a reasonable way even for, for me to calculate GDP. Mm-hmm. So it's households with spending capacity. If you look at Italy in mm-hmm. the 35 to 54-year-old age bucket, they look worse than Japan in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Japan, as you know, looks horrendous on that mm-hmm. metric mm-hmm. and has tried to solve it with leverage, with socialism, etc. They are going to compound. That bucket of people is going to compound negative population growth rate of 2% every year on a five-year CAGR. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you had a, if, can you imagine you woke up tomorrow and Walmart told you 
Yeah. Our traffic is for sure, Daniel, mm -hmm. for sure, 100% certainty, because demographics are, will, our traffic will be down 2% every year for the next five years. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you want to invest in, and, and what kind of multiple do you want to give me on that? Exactly. You, know, it's, it's, you cannot change time and space. You cannot change time and space. So why does Italy, why are people not losing their mind over the perspective outlook of Italy? At a bare minimum demographically, which leads you to a big part of their GDP numbers. The main, the main reason is because uh, the, the European Union project is, is, a very, uh, is, is still a very young project. Hmm? And as such, you, you are able to fall into the trap of believing that uh, those things will be changed by the fact that you're uniting uh, the, the countries and therefore a European Union. Mm. That individually, the 27 countries have similar problems in terms of demographics by the way, um, but that uniting them is going to be sorted out. Even worse, that with immigration and the, kind of, and, and the type of immigration that, that, is, that is joining the European Union, that might be sort of upset. Um, but fundamentally, I think that what happens is that um, we don't analyze properly the period of growth of the European Union. You know, so the euro is created. There's this period of of high growth and and tremendous amount of uh, of credit uh, credit growth, mm -hmm. and what um, and we did not pay attention to what the the underlying structural problems were that were created that existed already, and that you don't solve them through more credit growth, which mm -hmm. is the problem. Of the, of the European Central Bank that thinks that credit growth is going to sort everything out uh, and that, you know, it's basically just kicking the can further. But the, 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 the problem of demographics is important, but the problem of disposable income is much bigger. Mm -hmm. Because you can say... Well, they are tied together. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is it's much bigger in terms of expectations right. of growth. Because you can say, look... We have a demographic issue. Okay, you know, all uh, mature economies have a, uh, a demographic issue. However, if you have an in, a constantly increasing welfare state, that means that you tax the productive, that is the middle class, and you uh, subsidize the unproductive, right? yep. be because you agree with it or because you don't, the reality is that disposable income of the middle class is being diminished over and over yep. again. And therefore, the ability of the, of the economy to grow above, above the 2% uh, threshold is almost inexistent. No, that's why, that's why we get right back to the same problem. Hmm. The secular never went away. Exactly. That demographic never went away. So when the cycle slows... It reveals all these political issues and economic issues. Mm -hmm. Because, again, the cycle's no longer a tailwind. People exactly. forget that the European expansion started in 2013. Yep. It's, last I checked, it's almost the end of 2018. Exactly. So, I mean, unless you're not predicting a cyclical slowdown at all, mm -hmm. which always happens in Europe, we're at a very dangerous time. Now, um, maybe the last thing to hit on on this is, and tying this to, uh, for those of you who haven't read Daniel's book, again, Escape from the Central Bank Trap, um, how do you, you, you should probably, you, you've written uh, some very good ones lately. 
Uh, wouldn't it also be appropriate to talk about escaping from the demographic trap? I mean, yes. isn't the central banking trap partly or largely due to the demographic trap? It is. It is, absolutely. And instead of paying attention to it and thinking, how do we get out of the demographic trap? We, there's, there's three ways in which you do it. By being leader in technology, by, uh, having a, by putting at the forefront efficiency of government spending. Mm-hmm. Not government spending as a, uh, you know, as a comparison of who spends more and therefore I need to increase, but of efficiency. And the improvement of productivity. Those three elements are, are critical. Because you can, you can offset yeah, demographics yeah. with high va- added value. That's mm-hmm. why I'm bullish on the U.S. economy. You see, the difference between, if I look at the, at the U.S. economy and the European economy in terms of the large companies, the mid, the, the mid companies, etc., obviously there's high productivity companies in, all, in, in Europe as well, absolutely. But the difference is how, uh, how quickly and how uh, well U.S. companies go from being a startup to a small company to a large company to a, to a multi-billion company. The, the, the problem in the European Union is that there are so many burdens, uh, bureaucratic tax, uh, tax burdens, all, uh, that make it very, very difficult for SMEs to grow. And, that, and therefore, if we, if we, instead of paying attention to the problem of spending and covering it with taxation and with monetary policy, we paid attention to the problem of productivity yeah. and the problem of, of incentivizing high added value mm-hmm. sectors, that would be a, benefic- yeah. a benefit. Think about it this way. Why does the European Union not have a Google, an Amazon, a, a Facebook, a Netflix? Predominantly, if you go down to the root, because by trying to protect at any cost the conglomerates that were uh, threatened by those companies, it has also prevented the similar companies in those sectors to thrive in the European Isn't that crazy how they miss the most basic points of capitalism? And you said it at the beginning. To take that a step further, they, yeah. the reason why Walmart is starting to thrive again is because they're forced to compete with Amazon. Absolutely. They're forced to buy Jet.com. They're now at your doorstep with boxes with diapers and it says Jet.com, not just Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. It's a dynamic economy. You're not Absolutely. trying to protect the weak. You're trying to see the survival of the fittest. You're trying to see the survival of the fittest in, in understanding that if you try to protect uh, obsolete or, or low added value, low productivity sectors through subsidies and you tax the, the productive, you don't, you don't protect because those sectors will end up suffering equally. But more importantly is that you, you hurt, you hinder GDP growth, you hurt productivity, you hurt the ability of those other sectors to take over. Mm-hmm. That is a big problem. No? That, that is a great a great way to summarize, I think, a lot of what we talked about. I mean, it really differentiates the U.S., 3% GDP plus with capacity, to a place like Spain or Italy. It gets r- really right on the rail to your economic views, and, and uh, I want to congratulate you on those this year. You've been you know, as right as anybody's been, Thank and that's, that's, that's a very good thing. Thank you so much. And thank, think... thanks for having the conversation. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. Always good to talk to you. Oh, great. Thank thanks. you very much. He's uh, Daniel Lacaya. You could find him on Twitter. He's active. He actually responds to you with respect, <laughs> which is a great and refreshing thing in this economy, in this environment. I'm Keith McCullough. You can find me there, too. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. As a reminder, we are currently running a special promotion for new Hedgeye podcast listeners. 
Get your first month free to any one of our investing products for brand new Hedgeye subscribers. Email Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com to get yours. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions or conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.